Hello, everybody, and welcome once more. The Greg Proops Film Club takes you the ether here from the salubrious confines of cinema's most enchanting situation located right here in Hollywood. The Egyptian Theater for tonight's showing of the 1950 classic by Joseph H. Lewis, Gun Crazy. Uh, yeah. Um, Normally, the music plays again there and then about 15 more times throughout the show. Uh, we have a crack tech team here uh, at the Egyptian Theater, and uh, when they get a musical cue, goddammit, they're going to play it as often as they can. To people who are listening to the podcast, the theme music played twice before the show started, uh, once while people were filing in, and again while you were in the snack line looking for jujubes, which no one's had in a movie theater since 1986. Uh, the Greg Poops Film Club is our second installment. Our first installment was Pee Wee's Big Adventure last month. And I know um, Grant's not allowed to make announcements, but we're going to show Hairspray next month in March. So there. Look, look what I did. I let the cat out of the bag. No, not the John Travolta Hairspray, although that has its own merits, I suppose. Um, there's not enough um, Klonopin in the world to get through that one for me. So we're going to show... The John Waters uh, Hairspray, which will be a good, a good time. It's a very glamorous night. You've come on a, a special occasion. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Gotten Crazy before, but it's a tremendously evocative, uh, beautifully wrought, and uh, whoa, percussively sexy uh, caper film slash film noir slash dysfunctional relationship slash everything film. Um, it's everything that cinema needs to be, uh, in so much as it was made for no money over a short period of time and as effective as it could possibly be. Um, having watched a lot of giant, bloated Hollywood movies recently, um, coming back to a picture that was... Um, is as terse and lean as a piece of meat hitting the skillet. Uh, Russ Temblen is in this movie, way pre-West Side Story, and his face is just, it's just a box of creamy nuggets at this point. He's so young and small. Uh, this movie really delivers on about 50,000 different levels. And of course, we're in a very perplexing time right now uh, here in the United States. We're in the middle of a giant conundrum. All of us are trying to figure out with every fiber of our cerebral cortex how someone can dope for the sport curling. There seems to be no physical activity required in curling. You're, you're literally pushing a broom across the ice to keep a giant Canadian rock from sliding into a circle. Uh, and yet the Russians found a way to uh, cheat and uh, take drugs. Uh, how you can improve your performance in curling is something I'll never... Hockey? Sure. Downhill racing? That requires intense athleticism. Even cross-country racing uh, or, or, or something like that. I don't know a lot about winter sports except that there's only white people named Gnurf playing them. Uh, and that's the confusing part. Thank God Johnny Weir is there uh, to provide some excellence. Uh, I, I really, after the Matt Lauer uh, incident of the last 25 years, you would have thought they would have just exculped all fucking straight dudes from the announcing duties and really make this the gayest Olympics it could possibly be, which is the strength of this Olympics, let's be honest. Um, without Adam and the Glamazon bitches, this Olympics is just a bunch of jury people pushing sticks around, except for one Russian who boldly took dope to stop a rock with a broom. Uh, and I think we'll all remember where we were when that happened. It's a cold night in Los Angeles, just like it is in all the Chandler novels. If you've ever read Chandler, which, by the way, this isn't based on or has nothing to do with. Um, however, Chandler used to drink across the street at Musso's, so there's always a backyard connection. Uh, in fact, he wrote The Big Sleep, evidently, in a very damp booth there. Uh, Chandler's L.A. is a cold and rainy L.A. It rains all the bloody time in Chandler's L.A. And you're like, when did you live there? And it was like, it rained in the old days here. And it's cold tonight. So cold that you see people wearing shorts with Ugg boots. And that's how you know 
it's gotten cold in LA. You'll see a, a woman at a, at a parking, uh, at a stoplight, I called it a parking light because I'm from the 40s and in, when I grew up, it would say go and then walk with a giant wooden sign and then a cop would come up and go, hey bub, what's the rush? Uh, next to a parking light uh, with a, 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 a knit cap, a parka and, and, and a, a denim miniskirt and a dog. Uh, and that's how you know winter has arrived in Los Angeles. There's only two signs that winter has arrived. You receive a bunch of screeners for movies you have no intention of watching. That's one of the signs. And the other one is uh, it gets cold enough to wear shorts with a coat. Uh, in Chicago, of course, they would do that anyway. And you would be laughed out of a bar for, uh, for even daring to wear a coat in. Um, this is the world and it's next to me here and I'm going to open it up because... They've been so kind to me here at the Egyptian, at the Cinematheque, and provided an entire world with a bottle of vodka in it, which is how I perceive the world. Uh, we were talking before the show, me and some of the people you don't know, because you're not down with the jive, um, about uh, Orson Welles and what his internal monologue might be. Actually, it was Ingmar Bergman's internal monologue, and even going further than that, that Swedish people don't call Ingmar Bergman Ingmar Bergman. They call him Bergman or some weird pronunciation that we can't make. Uh, I was in uh, Holland a couple of years ago with my wife and my boyfriend, and we were doing a podcast there, and uh, I insisted that one of the Dutch people in the audience pronounce the word Van Gogh, because Dutch people don't even get near it. Uh, we say Van Gogh, we've always said Van Gogh, we're going to say Van Gogh, I'm not going to start pronouncing it in the Dutch way, because I don't know how. And I went up to a Dutch person and said, will you pronounce Van Gogh, and she went, ah, ah. and I was like, wow. Uh, I'm going to have to call you on this one and, and ask that you not use the Klingon cloaking device during the rest of our conversation here. Uh, and we were discussing what Berman's uh, internal monologue must have been like, and William uh, of the uh, Egyptians suggested that um, it was the dialogue of everyone in his movie. So all I could think of was that Berman laid in bed, uh, or Bergman, his, his um, identical twin, uh, the one who p English people could pronounce, uh, would lie in bed and just think, the woman is very sad. She continues to be sad. Then her personality takes many different aspects and she's sad in one of them. So tonight's film, uh, by the way, there's an audience mic tonight to pick up your reaction. I know. I feel the same way you guys do right now. I think it's over there, but it might, yeah, there it is. You can see it pointing at you. It was the one Grant was using before. I just want to say to the audience listening to the podcast on SoundCloud, uh, that this theater holds 2,000 people and that there's only 500 here tonight. Uh, I took a credit, no credit course when I went to university. I went to a very small uh, art school called San Francisco State. And back in the 70s, well, I started in the 70s and I wrapped up around the mid 90s. And I didn't get a degree, but I did attend a lot of classes. And there was a film class taught credit, no credit, by Mr. McNamara on the weekend. So you had to free up part of your weekend to go. And I remember we went to see The Jungle Book there, uh, and they had Wolfgang Reitemann, who directed The Jungle Book and was part of Disney's original crew of um, anti-Semitic misogynists uh, called The Fabulous Eight or whatever they were called, The, 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 the Hateful Nine. And uh, um, he spoke, uh, and he would look fantastic. He looked like Walter Pigeon from The Bad and the Beautiful, you know. Wolfgang Rutherman spoke like this. There's the Jungle Book was quite an experience to animate. A lot, a lot of lively characters. <laughs> and um, 
So we were able to ask questions, and because we were punk film pan, film film because we were funk film fans, forming a punk film, uh, a film around our punk, we would. Uh, one of the ch uh, kids was so bold as to say, um, you know, Disney wasn't the only animator making films in the '30s um, when you started. There was uh, the Fleischer Brothers and Wolfgang Reitherman was having none of fucking that. I'll tell you this much. To him, there was one studio, Disney. Every other studio was a bunch of commies or whatever because he went to Fleischer Brothers. They were... And it was like, all right, sorry, Wolfie. Easy. So Mr. McNamara's class was awesome for a thousand reasons. He, would, he looked a bit like Kurt Vonnegut if Kurt Vonnegut had been through the atmosphere of the earth. And, you know, shaggy. Uh, lots of uh, mustache and uh, uh, eyebrows. And he smoked... And during the movie and before and after. And uh, this, those are the days. If only, and we're showing a perfect movie to do it to, if only people would just light up here tonight. I don't think they can arrest anyone in here. The, you know, the, most of the people who work here are volunteers. The most you're going to get is chastised, I think. At least let's go in the bathroom and smoke one. Like we had to do in my high school. Well, we would go behind the portables. But the point is this. Uh, the, <laughs> we... Um, Really, what's the point, Greg? Oh, I'm getting to the fucking point. Since you're so quiet and attentive, I feel I can take as long as I wish. No, I'm joking. We're going to move right into this. Uh, Mr. McNamara would, um, uh, showed Gun Crazy, and it was the first time I'd seen it. And he made me love the movie for a million different reasons. Mostly because he said, this movie's what movies are about. The movie dialogue in it. It actually has the line, um, he's a two-bit guy. And he'll always be a two-bit guy. And... Later in the picture, and I'll spoil nothing in this movie. This is a fervent movie of attachment, obsession, and love, and violence, all inextricably linked. Um, I wouldn't say that in a Freudian way. I would say in a wildly entertaining movie way. And by the way, they bring it in at a fucking brisk 89 minutes, so you'll have time afterward. Um, uh, at one scene, Peggy Cummings, Annie Laurie, is lying on the bed, and Bart moves over to her on the bed. And if you'll notice, when you see the picture tonight, along with Russ Templin's uh, delightful cherubic face, Peggy Cummings' nostril twitches twice before everything goes dark and we know what happens next. And that was the moment that Mr. McNamara was literally shouting about in the film class. And he went, her nostril moves twice. That's movie acting! <laughs> and that's what I'm here to remind you tonight. All the Witherspoons in the world and all the Chastains in the world and all the Ryan Reynolds in the world cannot erase the two nostril flares that Peggy Cummins does here tonight. Apples and oranges, Greg, two different things. Oh, is it? In the large continuum of celluloid, uh, I think we have to honor each moment while we look backwards and walk or as if we were a paddle in a canoe uh, downwards to the stream because we only know uh, that Muybridge and Melee's preceded us. We don't know where we're going, except that Black Panther's the biggest movie of all time, and quite rightfully so. And that if you think this is going to create a spate of black superhero movies directed by black people, you haven't lived in Hollywood that long. That should have been funnier, but it, it's sadly true. <laughs> there'll be a few more, and then there'll be a meeting, and someone will go, ah. You know, we've been giving out an awful lot of Oscars to people of color. Surely there's some guy with a terrible past we could give an Oscar to. Because as you know, this year, the Oscar is featuring presenters um, that are women and stuff. 
Yeah, the, the academy's rushing headlong into the 22nd century. And uh, we're going to have oviparous people. Uh, we're going to have people whose uh, uh, ancestors uh, weren't from uh, Europe. Yeah, it's going to get off the chain this year. You watch. You watch the Oscars. It's going to get a little bit crazy. And then the movie about racists being redeemed is going to win everything. Because that's how Hollywood works. <laughs> you may remember the movie uh, um, about Martin Luther King, uh, Selma, uh, and how it didn't win, but how 12 Years a Slave did win. Because, <laughs> come on. Let's put things in perspective a little bit here. Come on. Uh, Joseph H. Lewis uh, made so many Westerns in his career. And this is what I find interesting. Joseph H. Lewis also directed the intensely awesome uh, Big Combo with Cornel Wilde and Richard Conti, which is his other great film noir. Um, he had a heart attack in his 40s, and so he slowed down the pace of his work. And then he lived another 50 years. Joseph H. Lewis makes a bunch of movies in the, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and then goes on to direct television in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and then died at the age of 93. I can't think of anyone else who slowed down after their heart attack at the age of 49 and lived another million years. I really think it's a testament to slowing down as soon as something awful happens to you, uh, and that you can really have an awesome third and fourth and fifth act, um, and direct Gunsmoke, which is completely admirable. Um, Peggy Cummings uh, is swirling in the heavens, and she only left us this year. Uh, she came over to Hollywood to uh, make a picture called Forever Amber and uh, got chucked off the picture, according to Vincent Price. Um, what did he say? After six weeks, mm, then she was gone, and it was Linda Darnell. Uh, so Linda Darnell ended up being in the picture, but Peggy Cummings made this fine movie. And then, awesomely, later in the 50s, The Curse of the Demon uh, with Dana Andrews. Um, everything she does in this movie is meant to elate, excite, and ignite you uh, beyond all measure. Uh, there's Jane Greer in Out of the Past. If we're talking Black Widows here, uh, there's Rita Hayworth uh, and the lady from Shanghai. There's dozens and dozens of film noir femme fatales uh, that get it going on. Uh, and none of them uh, have any candle to burn uh, next to Peggy Cummins' comprehensive Roman candle that she sets off from the minute she comes on screen uh, in this picture. So uh, what I wanted to say about Joseph H. Lewis was his nickname was Wagon Wheel because he made so many Westerns, he got bored making them and started putting the camera down below so that every scene established a shot with the camera rolling, with the, uh, the wagon wheel rolling in front of the camera. Uh, and yeah, this picture is exhilarating and has a handheld sequence uh, that will delight you. And you'll wonder, how did that handheld sequence get made? It was 1949 or 50 when they shot the picture. Uh, uh, equipment was enormous in those days. You didn't get in the backseat with a phone or whatever, uh, or with 17 random Scandinavians. This isn't a dogma film. This was a Hollywood B-movie crew in 1949. Uh, no, there was no soul searching. They got a Continental and they ripped the backseat out and they put the whole fucking camera in the backseat. Uh, yeah. No, spoiler alert. Uh, no one will be seated during the last three Lincoln Continental eviscerations. Uh, what did I want to tell you? Yes, it was this. Uh, Millard Kaufman is the front for this movie. Dalton Trumbo wrote this movie. Now, Millard Kaufman's a, a grand writer in his own, um, of his own accord, and uh, Dalton Trumbo wrote dozens of motion pictures. But Dalton Trumbo got caught up in the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee uh, witch hunt, and uh, during this period of his career, couldn't get a gig. 
So he wrote this picture and they got Milton Kaufman uh, to put his name on it. Kaufman didn't know Trumbo, but they had the same agent, George Woolner. And Woolner asked Kaufman if he'd be willing to put his name on the script. Kaufman said, if I had sense to say, let me talk it over with my wife. We discussed it and we believed it was rotten. A man couldn't write under his own name. Uh, in 1992, the year Kaufman officially requested the Writers Guild America take his name off the credits and replace it with Trumbo's name. He had been doing speaking engagements his whole career. Milton Kaufman also lived to be 90 years old. Uh, Dalton Trumbo did not, but Dalton Trumbo smoked six packs of cigarettes a day and rode in a bathtub with a parrot on his shoulder. So he had his own colorful lifestyle going on. Evidently, Kirk Douglas gave him the parrot. So I'm sure the parrot was like, I need you to write an ending. The fifth act is weak. You call that a love interest? I've seen more love in a Hallmark card. Uh, he would, he would uh, always be asked about Gun Crazy, and uh, Kaufman always said that Dalton Trumbo wrote it. But Trumbo never really did get credit until uh, 92. Um, at the time that this picture came out, Trumbo was in deep shit with the HUAC, and he was held for contempt of Congress. Um, he got fined in jail. He got fined in jail along with all of them. He did a year in a federal pen. He served about 10 months right after this picture opened. Uh, then he came back and moved to Mexico where he sat in the bathtub a lot and uh, wrote a bunch of other bitching movies, including Roman Holiday. And I think, my, uh, of course, Johnny Gunny got his gun. He finally got to write and direct. Um, and then I think he worked on Papillon as well toward the very end. Um, this picture is about love. But a special kind of love, an unconditional love, not a sappy, uh, there's something, not, not, not the kind of Hollywood rom-com love that's always presented to us. That was a wild yelping noise. I think there's, I think there's a cinematic ephemeral muntjac loose in the audience tonight. They're the barking cinematic deer and they make wild uh, appropriate barks whenever the word love is brought up during a discussion of cinema, and I think we just heard one there, kind of a pow, pow. You'll hear it throughout the movie if you listen close enough on the soundtrack. Uh, it's an added special effect that not a lot of people know about. This movie was nominated for no Oscars, but you'll, it's going to win one tonight in your heart. As I say, um, the mutual attraction and sexual dynamism of this movie override almost everything else uh, that you're ever going to anticipate or experience in your own um, sordid, squalid Hollywood life. I know uh, that after the movie's over and you're having a taco and discussing it with your friends, you're going to think two things. One, I need a beret. And two, I want a globe that has vodka in it for my living room. And these two things shall be yours. I'll see you after the picture to discuss it briefly. But now, if you're listening on the podcast, it's time to cue it up. And if you're here in the audience, which I think some of you are, and some of you are getting ready to bark for love, it's time for the 1950 dashing, crashing film noir classic by Joseph H. Lewis, written by Dalton Trumbo, ghosted by Milton Kaufman, Gun Crazy. to work. 
Why do you have to kill people? Why can't you let them live? Unbelievably fantastic. Uh, wow. And, and brisk, too. Uh, the hamburger eating scene, Bonnie and Clyde. Um, the scene in the barn with the tears running down her face in cold blood. Um, the scene in the, uh, the meat locker, 16 different fucking movies. Every single French movie subsequent to this movie um, steals from this movie. Bonnie and Clyde deeply. They had no idea which way to go with Bonnie and Clyde. And I'll be honest, we watched Bonnie and Clyde recently. And other than Faye Dunaway, who's an electric comet filled with unbelievable goodness that propitates through the universe, it's not as good as this movie. Uh, this movie gets a lot more done, I think, in a lot more ways. And remember, gun violence is bad and is not to be promoted in any way, unless you're an inconceivably sexy couple in 1949 on the run, wearing berets and sunglasses and running across the street in long overcoats, driving 1949 Lincoln Continentals. Uh, in which case, it's fine, because it's all a fantasy. Uh, I, uh, I, I still like this picture after all this time. I think it's uh, magnificent. I think also her character is just tremendous. Um, extra special surprise in the last reel when um, they go back to visit uh, Bart's honest family who lives near the railroad tracks and Annie Laurie steals the baby and says, no one will shoot us if we have the baby. That is love, ladies and gentlemen. And right before, right before, and if you know anything about film noir, which obviously you do, that's why you're here, um, they're doomed from the get-go. Uh, but the last night when they're dancing and she says, do you know what I've waited for my whole life tonight? And he says, me too. And then when they're in the bull rushes and the fog's gathered around them and they know the cops are closing in, I wouldn't have it any other way. That is true romance. We'll be back with Hairspray next month on March 14th. You've been the uh, smartest crowd in the world. This has been the Greg Proops Film Club. Thank you very much for coming out tonight. Oh!